0: For God's house. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sermon of the Third Sunday in Lent, March 7, 2021 from Christchurch, Jerusalem. As we consider Jesus' cleansing of the temple, Rev. David Pelegi cautions us not to dismiss the temple as unimportant or merely a picture fulfilled in Jesus. The temple was a divine institution where heaven met earth, where God came down to dwell among his people. Jesus was zealous for this special place and is similarly passionate for the holiness of the church. If we are the royal priesthood, we also should have a love and passion for the holiness of God's people and for our witness in the world. Before we begin, we remind you that you can watch our services. Our Sunday evening communion service is broadcast in its entirety on YouTube at 4 p.m. UK time, 11 a.m. U.S. Eastern time. Video of just a sermon is posted on YouTube on Mondays. Visit youtube.com slash Christ Jerusalem and subscribe to get notifications of new videos. Now, on to the lectionary readings.
1: Two scriptures for this evening, the first from... Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures, taken from the first book of Kings, chapter 8, beginning with verse 1. Then King Solomon summoned into his presence at Jerusalem the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes and the chiefs of the Israelite families, to bring up the ark of the Lord's covenant from Zion, the city of David. All the Israelites came together to King Solomon at the time, the festival of the month of Ethanaim, the seventh month. When all the elders of Israel had arrived, the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord, and the tent of meeting, and all the sacred furnishings in it. The priests and Levites carried them up, and King Solomon and the entire assembly of Israel that had gathered about him were before the ark, sacrificing so many sheep and cattle that they could not be recorded or accounted. The priest then brought the Ark of the, Lord, of the Lord's Covenant to the place of the inner sanctuary of the temple, the most holy place, and put it beneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread their wings over the place of the Ark and overshadowed the Ark and its carrying poles. These poles were so long that their ends could be seen from the holy place in front of the intersanctuary, but not from outside the holy place. And they are still there today. There was nothing in the ark except the two stone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord and the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in a dark cloud. I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. While the whole assembly of Israel was standing there, The king turned around and blessed them. And then he said, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. For he said, Since the day I brought my people Israel out of Egypt, I have not chosen a city in any tribe of Israel to have a temple built to my name so that my name might be there. But I have chosen David to rule my people Israel. My father David had it in his heart to build a temple for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, you did well to have it in your heart to build a temple for my name. Nevertheless, you are not the one to build the temple, but your son, your own flesh and blood. He is the one who will build the temple for my name. The Lord has kept the promise he made I have succeeded David, my father, and now I sit on the throne of Israel just as the Lord promised, and I have built the temple for the name of the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. I have provided a place there for the ark in which is the covenant of the Lord that he made with our ancestors when he brought them out of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Now we contrast that with the gospel which is taken from the second chapter of the Gospel of John. In respect of these words given to and by the Lord, please stand with me as we hear the reading of the Gospel. Beginning at the 13th verse. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, The Jews then responded to him, "What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this?" Jesus answered them, "Destroy this temple, and I will raise it in three days." They replied, "It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days." But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem, all at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Gospel of the Lord. Let's
2: pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we come to you as your children. We pray that you'll give us hungry hearts that will be eager to learn. We indeed pray as always that you would bless us and encourage us, challenge us, and Lord, when necessary, to discipline us. So Lord, we submit ourselves to you and your word we pray that um, these words will be applied to us, to each one, or speak to each one of us through your Holy Spirit. We ask this for the sake of Jesus the Messiah and in his name. Amen. Well, we're in Lent and uh, often in Lent, the lectionary, Loves to resort, um, you might say, to John's Gospel. So we leave Mark for a while, and uh, we have some weeks in the Gospel of John. And uh, the Gospel of John, of course, is indeed uh, very beautiful and uh, certainly beloved by millions of Christians and uh, has been an incredible um, revelation uh, to helping us uh, to best understand who Jesus is, his relationship with the Father, what, it, what uh, eternal life means, what uh, discipleship looks like. But it's not always easy to preach John's Gospel. And uh, more often than not, John's gospel can uh, be very easily understood, misunderstood, I should say. Just take, for example, uh, the whole concept of what we call cheap grace. Very often, uh, the way John's, the, the gospel of John has been misread and misapplied, it uh, has created a uh, very easy, cost-free Christianity. Just believe in Jesus. And uh, there are many uh, uh, churches that uh, uh, preach a uh, belief or a trust in Jesus, and this is somehow all one needs. Uh, I think the, um, the epistles of John, especially First John, was probably written to um, interpret or to better interpret the Gospel of John. Secondly, we all might just, before we start, consider Yes, how sometimes the reading of John's Gospels led to anti-Semitism. Of all the Gospels, uh, this is perhaps the most difficult. And if you look here uh, to my right and your left, you see uh, one of Marc Chagall's paintings from the so-called White Period in the 1920s, which he has a Jewish Jesus on the cross and is surrounded by Jewish suffering. And uh, some folks can like to draw a line uh, from John's gospel down through the centuries all the way to the Holocaust. I think that is far too simplistic. But certainly the gospel has been misunderstood and misinterpreted and uh, has indeed caused injury uh, to the Jewish people. I certainly don't think that was the intention of the author nor uh, certainly not the Jewish Messiah. So with those two things, let's look at our text. And uh, our text is the cl- the uh, temple incident, some, uh, with the cleansing of the temple, which appears in all four Gospels. But here in John's Gospel, it's going to appear at the beginning of the, of, uh, the story, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, where in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it appears uh, at the end, in the last week of uh, the life of Jesus. And certainly John uh, is not trying to be chronological here, and for those who somehow believe uh, or hold to the view that there were two cleansings of the temple, I I think this is uh, pretty unconvincing but John instead has a theological point, yes, and uh, that theology is very important for us, certainly very important for all of us to consider. So Jesus goes down from Capernaum, or he goes from Capernaum uh, to uh, Jerusalem. It is the feast of Passover, uh, and uh, very tellingly, John has uh, Jesus... Uh, at the Passover every year during his public ministry. And when Jesus um, goes into the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Yes. What makes this difficult is not only sometimes an anti-Jewish bias that we bring to the text, but uh, there are two other difficulties um, that uh, perhaps prevent us from fully appreciating what's uh, what's happening here. One is the uh, perhaps the notion that Jesus himself uh, in some way hated the temple or that uh, Jesus had uh, virtually no uh, regard for the temple. And I think a closer look at the Gospels shows that that's not the case that in every gospel, whether it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and by the way, let's throw in the book of Acts, the temple is held in high regard, and there's something uh, very positive. Jesus has almost a positive comment in in every one of the four gospels. In Matthew's gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus mentions that if you are going to sacrifice and your brother has something against you, then you should uh, stop your journey to the temple and go and be reconciled. What does that say to us? It says to us that Jesus expected, at least his early Jewish followers, to continue worshiping in the temple. Luke's gospel begins and ends in the temple. Jesus, uh, uh, every year of his life, as a youngster, goes up to Jerusalem for the Passover. The, um, you might characterize the, the, the piety of Jewish people uh, in the time of Jesus uh, in two words. One was Torah and the other was temple. Yes, there was a great love for the Torah and there was a great love for, for the temple in Jerusalem. Mark's gospel in, in, in uh, chapter 11, uh, we, we hear not only the, the critique of Jesus, but uh, we, we hear Jesus uh, talking or, or um, criticizing the way that um, the temple is being used as a, as a shortcut to, to, um, to uh, uh, engage in commercial activities. And here in this gospel... What do we read? We read that the zeal, yes, the zeal of Jesus, yes, the passion of Jesus for the temple consumes him and causes him to act. Yes? So we can't it's not so simple to say to dismiss the temple. Yes. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus highlights the corruption in the temple. The temple is a divine institution. The temple, by the way, we, and maybe today it's very easy to minimalize its importance. Yes, in the scheme of God. But the temple is there from the beginning. In the beginning, Adam and Eve are in Eden, the Garden of Eden. Eden as the garden is like a temple. It's the first temple. And then we have uh, the tabernacle and then the temple itself that we read about in First Kings chapter 8. And then all of these, and, and uh, whether it's the garden or whether it's the tabernacle or even the temple, we should be clear as to, as to the function. What was the purpose of this temple? Now, it's very easy to say, oh, yes, it was God in the box. Yes, it's all about God was in this temple, and he was in this box. In fact, you hear a lot of preaching and teaching um, condemning um, uh, the Jewish people or condemning Judaism, and uh, people will characterize Judaism by saying, oh, they had God in the box, but we have the Holy Spirit, and he's everywhere. He's not confined to one place, but it, it... There is a certain truth that, yes, the temple is the um, dwelling place of God. It is where heaven meets earth. But it's much bigger than that. There's a very popular verse, at least one that I like very much, and I I quote uh, quite frequently. It's in Exodus 25, verse 8. And God said to Moses, build me a temple. Actually, build me a temple modeled on the one that I have in heaven. So God's throne room, by the way, is is interchangeable with the temple. Build me a temple. And you would expect the verse to go on to say, so I can live in the box. But the verse doesn't say that. Build me a temple so that I can dwell among you. That the building of the temple And the maintenance of the temple in holiness and purity is going to allow God to dwell amongst his people. It's what facilitates his presence. I love the verse. I think it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love the verse. and It's at the end of Exodus. Maybe they'll put it on my tombstone. But... um, and it sums up the whole purpose of the Exodus, the whole purpose of the deliverance from Egypt, which, by the way, wasn't to bring the Jewish people to freedom so they could come to um, Tel Aviv and make falafels, yes, or start uh, El Al Airlines, or you know, come up with all these ingenious high tech ideas. Right? The purpose is as follows. So, while consec- so I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar, and will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests, right? That's the setting up of the tabernacle and the ritual that uh, surrounds it. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of Egypt. I liberated them. I saved them. I delivered them so they could be free and that be. And find so flourishing. No, I did all these things so that I might dwell among them. Right? God's purpose from the beginning. Right? To enter into fellowship and in relationship with his people. And he does it through the temple. Yes, does it through the tabernacle, he does it through the temple. But the temple, yes, is holy. Right? You don't have time to go through all the verses. Psalm 11, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Yes, because because when something is that closely associated with God, it is indeed holy. The temple is holy. The temple uh, is indeed, um, it's on holy ground. It is the habitation of a holy God. It has holy personnel, and that holiness is dangerous. The Lord is a consuming fire, and we see what happened in the Old Testament, for example, with the sons of Aaron who rush into the tabernacle, maybe being a little bit tipsy, but certainly unprepared and not following the ritual. They themselves are consumed by fire. Well, we saw what happened to those who inadvertently touched the ark. It may not seem fair or somehow uh, it seems kind of strange, but it drives home the point that God is indeed holy and that holiness has to be safeguarded. And the temple itself needed to be safeguarded. And therefore, one could only approach the temple, yes, in holiness, in purity. Not only ritual purity, which we've talked about before, but also moral purity. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who can come to the temple? Only those who ritually immerse themselves so that there, there's a physical cleanness as well as a moral cleanness. And... We easily dismiss the temple and our teaching and preaching. And we, we say very often, oh, it's all fulfilled in Jesus. As if it doesn't matter anymore. But I guarantee you, if we take time to study the temple, the tabernacle and the temple, and not to study it simply as allegory, But to study it, we will learn more about God and his holiness and what it means to serve him and the nature of sacrifice than in all the systematic theology books we'll ever read. We as Christians are in no need of a temple, but God has revealed himself, yes, in the building. Oh, some people always say, i 'm tired of it buildings don 't matter well, if buildings don 't matter i don 't know why God spent so much time and energy and effort to have the first the tabernacle and then the temple built to certain specifications, so that holiness so that holiness would not uh, his holiness would be seen not only as something uh, separate or, or something uh, akin to divine power. But that holiness would also be equated with beauty. Yes. The Ark of the Covenant, which is all gold inside, who's the only person that saw it? Was God Himself. And so the temple, its building, its worship services, its holy personnel, priests, Levites, etc., has a lot to teach us. And it's we, at our peril, easily dismiss it with the, with the sentence, oh, Jesus fulfilled all that, it doesn't matter. It has an incredible influence, yes, throughout the New Testament, and it has an incredible in- influence throughout church history. You might say we still live in the shadow of the temple. I'm not arguing that we need a temple. I'm just saying that God revealed himself in a way that uh, is extremely uh, eternal. Yes, and so therefore we should uh, take it seriously. So, Jesus has great love for the temple. Yes, the temple in its it, itself uh, is extremely important. As I said in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a critique against the temple because it's corrupt. And as I mentioned, it, it was still a divine institution despite its corruption. And like all institutions, whether they be human or divine, we are all subject, or they are all subject, to rot and constantly need renewal And I think any time God does a work, there's a new movement, there's a new political party, there's a new denomination, there's some new outbreak of the Holy Spirit, I think we should take our watch and set it. Because 15 minutes after the revival starts, after the renewal starts, after the ideology or the movement that starts that 's going to bring great change and uh, hope for the future, whether it 's spiritual or secular, we better start the re- we better start the reform movement we better start the renewal movement and not take it for granted yes that uh, this is going to continue without. Uh, human corruption or without the devil coming in and subverting, you know, what God is trying to do to quote one of my favorite theologians, a very prominent Canadian man. Yes. Rust never sleeps. Yes. Rust never sleeps. And so in the synoptic gospels, Jesus confronts corruption, corruption of the temple. And, uh, not only does he con- co- confront the corruption that uh, was that surrounded the purchase of sacrifices and the exchange of money, he also confronts those who lead the temple, the Sadducees, and it's those Sadducees that will ultimately be responsible for crucifying Jesus. And uh, interestingly enough, in the Book of Acts, the Pharisees—we all think—are Jesus's enemies come to the defense of the early church twice, once with Peter and once with Paul. What is the critique that Jesus has here in John's Gospel? In John's Gospel, the critique isn't so much about, the, about corruption. It's simply that the business of the temple or the ministry of the temple or the life of the temple is being consumed by business. Now, let's not be naive. Let's not try to be uh, Lenin or Stalin and to imagine that somehow we can eliminate buying and selling from human life. That's not what's at issue here. Of course you have to buy a sacrifice. Of course someone has to sell an animal. Obviously, someone has to, to, to make money for raising the animal for, for sacrifice. Right? This, this isn't being naive and condemning commercial activity. This is something quite normal, and there's nothing sinful about it. In the synoptic gospels, he was condemning uh, perhaps the prices, yes, or the price gouging, or the way pilgrims were, were, were being cheated and scammed. But here it doesn't mention that. And the sense here, at least as I understand it and as I read it, is very simply that the, uh, the temple, again, like any, uh, virtually like any institution, becomes an end in itself. just like many churches, political parties, ideologies, and whatever it takes to keep the institution going. And to protect the institution at any cost, yes. And if we, you know, need to to create a a larger business infrastructure, commercial infrastructure, yes, to enable sacrifices to continue, then so be it. And Jesus, of course, his critique is that uh, the temple has lost its focus, yes. Its purpose, yes, of being this meeting place between heaven and earth has gotten lost. And there is this zeal or this passion for the temple, yeah, for God's house, for God's reputation, for God's holiness. And at first this is the first time in, in the Gospel of John that Jesus talks about God as being his father. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the temp the temple incident sets up the crucifixion. But John places it here at the beginning of the gospel, at the beginning of his gospel. And the purpose, uh, no doubt, is to show that there's there was a confrontation or there's a problem from the beginning. But more importantly, to show what will come after the crucifixion. Yes? What happens after the crucifixion? The death and resurrection. And after the death and resurrection, Jesus is going to, or the gospel writers, and in this case, Jesus understands, yes, that there's going to be a change. And that change is the destruction of the temple, right? The place, yes, the where the presence of God. And what facilitates God's presence in the world will now be located within Jesus. That's the change that happens. But even more importantly, yes, is that these people talk about Jesus being the new temple, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. The community, those followers of Jesus, yes, are also described in, um, as being the temple. Now, they're not a metaphor for the temple, or we should say we're not a metaphor for the temple. We're not a picture of the temple. We are the temple. And there are numerous verses, yes, uh, found in, especially in Paul, but also um, in Peter that uh, discuss or or i uh, highlight this. So let me read you one or two, and let's look at the context of this. Because the question I'd like, I want to ask is that if God himself is so passionate about the holiness and the purity of his house, and by the way, may I remind you that he's, he goes as far as destroying his own house, destroying the temple when it becomes polluted as yes, by idolatry, and by death. This we have in the book of Ezekiel. If God is so passionate, and Jesus has so much love for the temple, and he has a zeal for the temple, and we, the the community, the people of God, are indeed the temple, yes? Do we have the same concern? Do we have the same zeal? Or do we have that same passion for the community, for the people of God? Or can we easily, or do we easily dismiss it and say, well, you know, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. I don't go to church, but I do, do want to follow Jesus as a disciple. You know, they're all kind of hypocrites. Besides, they're boring, too. You should hear the music in my church. yeah very very in very very many places we easily easily dismiss, yes, we easily you might say trash uh the temple, so in first corinthians chapter three, we read the following it says um do you, not know your, you, do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? Now, here's the warning. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. God's temple is holy. Think of the holiness of the physical building. And people are always holier than places. So if the building was holy, if, the, if the, the mountain of the Lord was holy, how much holier, yes, are we as God's people? And of course, holiness has its great benefits, but it has its responsibilities. Anyone who destroys God's temple, God will hold them accountable. Now, what does that mean? Probably in this context in which Paul talks about unity and division and also about building on a right way, yes, uh, on the foundation uh, laid uh, by the apostles um, and, and uh, lay, the foundation being Jesus, but uh, others coming and building upon that foundation that anyone who, who brings um, division and disunity, and here we're not talking about opposing or objecting to immoral behavior or bad teaching, those who are building uh, um, something that is not, uh, doesn't have its foundation in uh, Jesus himself, be guilty of destroying God's temple could be guilty of God's judgment. We don't very often take this seriously. And we're very, very easy to criticize and tear down the church. And believe me, we we do need to criticize ourselves. There's a lot that's wrong. Yeah, there's a lot that is wrong. But again, do we have a certain zeal or a passion? Do we even have a love for, for God's people and for the community? Or is it like, oh, it's me and Jesus, maybe a few of my friends? Yeah? And here, by the way, when Paul uses the word you, it's in the plural. It's not only that I'm a temple of the Holy Spirit, but the community is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Also, we can go to 2 Corinthians and the context here is a little bit different. We um, use this verse to talk about marriage, but is, there's actually a, a, bigger, uh, 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 a bigger background to be considered. It says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what, do, what does righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols, For we are the temple of the living God? As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Paul, of course, quoting from the Hebrew Bible, therefore come out from them and be separate, says the Lord, Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Here the context is largely ideology, idolatry. And what goes together with idolatry? Like a ham and cheese sandwich? Yes. Like, um, what else? Eggs and bacon. Hamburgers and ketchup. I don't know. Yeah. Help me. Tacos and burritos. I don't know. What is the kissing cousin of idolatry? Immorality. Yeah. Immorality and idolatry. Just... Naturally, go together. We learn that you know in the Book of Numbers, and uh, something that's emphasized throughout in the Scripture all the way throughout. And so, here the conduct—the enemy of holiness is idolatry. The ultimate enemy of holiness is idolatry. And if you think idolatry is just simply about some statues somewhere, my dear friends, idolatry is a lot more insidious than that. Anything that gives us security, an identity that is not found in God, that is not found in the eternal, is, Id- is, an, uh, is an idol. Yeah. And the human heart, every day, according to John Calvin, maybe the only thing he said that I really like, the, the, is, is an idol factory. And every day we have to knock them down or destroy them. But again, we are the temple. Don't touch an unclean thing. Now you would think, okay, if we're gonna have zeal for the Lord, maybe I need to be you know, like one of those guys on the internet. I, I, I need to take the whip, you know, and bring it into the temple. I need to overturn the tables. I need to hunt for heresy. I need to, you know, sniff out, you know, false prophets, et cetera, et cetera. Let me read you the next. Perhaps one of my more favorite passages and remind you of the context. At the end of Ephesians 2, it says... um, Consequently, we are no longer foreigners, we who are Gentiles and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. And in him, you two are being built together to become a temple in which God lives by his spirit. But what's the context of this? The context of this is relational holiness. The context of this, Paul writes this at the end after talking about, yes, division. Yes, two different ethnic groups can't get along. Gentiles hate Jews Jews hate Gentiles and what in the cross there is forgiveness yeah and in the cross the death and the resurrection of Jesus right there is a, a unity this one new man and this one new man is being what being built together to be a temple where god lives and so what governs this relational holiness is reconciliation, forgiveness, <clears throat> love. People read these verses about, you know, or, or sometimes, you know, uh, hear about uh, uh, a certain zeal, yes, for the, for, the, for the church or for God's people, yeah, and they become witch hunters. Again, not that we should tolerate bad teaching, we certainly shouldn't tolerate heresy, or apostasy, or immorality. And being a temple, yes, we're also, be, we're also called priests. You know, in the book of Exodus, God calls Israel um, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And uh, we read in the New Testament I don't say this in any way to replace Israel and the Jewish people and God's purposes. We also understand that that priesthood has been expanded, yes, and that all believers now become priests. Now, everyone loves being a priest because then we can say, oh, we have no need for clergy. Why, I'm a priest before God. You know what it means? I can just go right into the throne room i can march right in boom 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 get on god's lap and i can show him my wish list god you know i need a new car and i need this and that and i'm your child and surely you love me but if we want to be priests being priests certainly has privileges but it also has incredible responsibility because the priest in ancient israel were held to a higher standard of holiness. Yeah, so we want the benefits and the blessings. Yeah. It comes with, uh, it, it comes, you might say, with a price tag. And there are many things that the priest couldn't do that the ordinary Israelite could do. We don't ever, we very rarely ever um, consider such a thing. But, uh, Peter, of course, You know, he talks about us in in the epistle in in 1 Peter. He says, we are, of course, our priests. Um, Sorry. He says, dear friends, I urge, uh, no, sorry. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wondrous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. But Peter gets done with this. He then goes on to tell us what it means. Submit yourself to the authorities. Um, Don't speak, don't talk stupidly, right? Don't talk foolishly. Live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Show proper respect for everyone. Love the brotherhood of the believers. Fear God. That's the context of what it means to be a royal priesthood. Yes. So just as uh, the Lord had had a zeal for the temple, just as Jesus loved, yes, the temple, so too he loves the church. Yes. Revelation 1 9 says, He loves us. 1 8 says, He loved us. He shed his blood for us and makes us a kingdom and a priesthood. Right? God takes the initiative, and that initiative is taken out of love. I'd like to end um, with one more passage, especially, I think it's kind of appropriate, um, as we, the, the, virtually the first image we have in the Bible is uh, a temple. There's a very strong argument, uh, which shows the garden being very similar to the tabernacle, uh, It's followed by a marriage. And the Bible itself ends, yes, with a marriage and no temple, because God Himself will be the temple. But uh, to just finish with this passage it says, Husbands, love your wives. I'm going to change the translation slightly. Yes. Okay. Husbands, love your wives as Jesus, the Messiah, loved the temple. Yes, loved the community, loved the people, and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant temple without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Yes, after all, no one hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as the Messiah, yes, does for his people. For we are members of his body. yes. And, and the passage goes on and on, right? So, again, as Jesus loved the earthly temple, temple that stood in his day, he loves us. He has a, a certain zeal for us, he has a passion for our holiness. And uh, we too, as a community, as the people of God, I believe should have those same concerns. Yeah. In love, but still nonetheless, yes, a certain zeal for the holiness of God's people. Yes, for our witness in the world, for our work on his behalf. And for... Yes always remembering yeah yes, the value of, of holiness, all right let's pray, Father in heaven, you sent your son and we are grateful for all that he has done for us, how he's made us into a people, how he has brought us into reconciliation with himself, and how he lives in our midst, how he wants to bless us and to enter into fellowship with us. We pray that uh, we can live in a way that not only honors him, yes, but reflects the character of, his, of Jesus the Messiah. Empower us and help us, Lord, in these matters. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page, on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you and blessings from the city of the king.